Let me pray for us as we get started. Lord, you're good. And we sang about the goodness of the creation that you made in the world that you love. We've sung about your goodness experienced uh, by us um, as quick as we are in this world. Uh, Our experience from beginning to end is of your presence and of your delight. And so, honor yourself, we pray, this morning, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So I'll just confess, um, very appropriate, I guess, when you start on a text like the Song of Songs that um, Rachel wrote me earlier this week and said, so, you know, have you thought about what you're going to say? I'm working on the worship music, because one of the things I love about Rachel when she organizes worship is it's clear she's thought through what you're going to say and then tries to express it in music as well. And I started looking through my calendar where I keep all of my notes, and I realized I didn't have the text for this week, so I had to admit to her um, early this week, oh, I... I don't know what the text is. A little embarrassing. And then she wrote back and said, oh, it's this text. Song of Songs, chapter 4, verses 8 through 5-1. And I can't quite remember how you phrased it, but she said, aren't you lucky? <laughs> now, there's a reason this book is not preached on often. My wife was saying just this morning, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on the Song of Songs. Um, it's awkward. It's a little racy. Um, It's an area of the church that we don't like to talk about, and if we do, we immediately want to spiritualize it. It's really about Christ and the church. It has nothing to do with the people. Um, But it has everything to do with people. And it's incredibly important for us to talk about it. And my second confession I'll make is, as a husband, this is where actually one of the areas that I'm the weakest in. My wife would, I think, be quick to say, in all the range of things that I do as husband, um, the romantic side is where I am not. She describes me as low amplitude man. So I'm never very happy or very sad. I'm just very even, but also just not very romantic. Um, I just keep thinking, I showed up. I'm here. what, What else do we need to do? Let me connect this also with what you've been talking about as a church for the last five weeks, right? There's, there four, over the last five weeks, um, Dix led you through thinking about the role of the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit roll through us, work through us, embody himself in us so that God's presence is made manifest in this world through the presence of his people? And that Jesus invites us to know the Holy Spirit. He continues to challenge us not to quench the Holy Spirit, but to pursue the Holy Spirit's presence, and also to live out who the Holy Spirit is. Right? And that that's what the church does. We, when we gather together and when we leave this place, are God's presence and God's people because of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And then I think it was really appropriate that even as we jumped back into the lectionary readings, um, Dave Deal last week talked about what does it mean to age well? Because you see, we can talk all we want about what it means to be people filled with the Holy Spirit, but it's actually lived out in the day-to-day reality in which we find ourselves. Right? It's not in the heightened moments of spiritual retreats, as important as that is. It's not just when we're collected together in worship, but it's as we face the reality of aging and what that means and how do we progress into wisdom and press into it. And I think um, as delightful and as awkward as the Song of Songs is, um, it also reminds us that... Um, in the midst of our greatest passions, as well as some of our greatest failures, right? In the heights of ecstasy, as well as in all of the agony, we live into what it means to be people who are filled with the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, who gave us these gifts, including the gifts of romance and the gift of love. 
And what's interesting about the text that the lectionary gave us, it's interesting to me that the daily Bible readings following immediately skip back out of the Song of Songs back into Proverbs, as if like the lectionary people like, one half chapter is all we can manage right now. <laughs> In point of fact, Jewish Christians, uh, not Jewish Christians, um, Jewish leaders, the rabbis uh, back in the Middle Ages used to say, nobody under the age of 30 should even read this book. It's so wild. But um, the section that the lectionary gives us is right at the center. Um, at the very heart of this book is this gathering of um, this man and this woman who have pursued each other and sought one another, have finally come together. And there's a suggestion that you're encountering them on their wedding night. And that's where the story picks up. And when Rachel said, well, you know, I wonder who we should get to do the Bible reading, I thought, Jillian would be fantastic. <laughs> because I bet she could do it in a saucy but absolutely appropriate way as only somebody with a British accent could pull off. <laughs> it's what makes Shakespeare sound so good. And you got exactly the right tone as she was reading it. So before I try to explain the passage, I'd love us to appreciate the poetry of the passage, right? Because it would be a tragedy if we just started breaking and go, here are six principles on love and romance, right? Enjoy the poetry. So I want you to think about the senses that are described that are being used. Look at the geography that's being covered. Um, and then I want you to think about the resonances that these images might have if you're familiar with the Bible. So let me read the passage one more time. Think about your senses, think about the geography, and think about what other images come to mind when you think of a, these, uh, these pictures. And I won't do it in Jillian's wonderful voice. I almost would be tempted to make her come up again, but here we go. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon, descend from the crests of Amana, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain hounts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine than the and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh and my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. Do you notice how all of your senses are engaged in this passage? Right? All five senses get engaged in what um, this man and this woman um, are doing and are to each other. There's, there's taste and touches. There's sights and smells and sounds. There's descriptions of um, spices um, that are kind of um, fragrant and, well, spicy is the only word, really. Um, <laughs> Right, there's the taste of milk and honey. Um, there's several uh, words that are euphemisms for touches and caressing. 
um, you hear their voice, you hear their call to one another. It strikes me that as you enjoy this poetry, it's incredibly sensual. And you don't really see that in a lot of poetry in the Bible. Um, a lot of the poetry we have is in the Psalms, and those tend to be very, uh, right, more declamations. My heart is doing this, let's all do this, let's become this. Um, but in this passage, the author seems to delight in all of the senses, being engaged and being used, being stimulated and being challenged. Part of what, as I was wrestling with the passage and thinking about it was, um, it forced me to remember God made this world. God delights in the physical substance of the world that we live in, of the physical substance that we are, of the way that we interact with it, and so much of it is designed for delight, not just for utility. Now, this is pretty challenging to me because, as anybody who knows me really well would know, if I could be a completely disembodied brain, I would probably go in that direction. I'm a pretty interior person. My exterior engagement with the world is pretty limited. Um, but it occurred to me that in this passage, the author of scripture doesn't really go, wow, what a godly, beautiful soul you have. How your intellectual capabilities excite and stir me. Your prayer life moves me to no end. But there's actual delight in all, all of what it means. And I think as we enter the fall season, um, the memories of summer for many of us are dear, right? With the beauty of the colors that are now fading, the smells, the textures of the fruits and vegetables that are fresh and new, the, the sound of um, the wind blowing through the trees, all of those things we treasure as we move into a season where it all begins to fade away for a while, only, I think, to heighten our experience of it again when it comes back in the spring. For us as a people of God, gathered by the Spirit of God, I think this text challenges us to live fully into the physical reality that God gave us. It's not a secondary thing to God, how our bodies function, what they do, or the taste of the food that we eat, the textures of the clothes we wear, the delight that we have in feasting with one another. That these are actually part and parcel of God's good gift to us, because he easily could have made it. In Martin Luther's words, I think he put in one of his commentaries, if I were God, I probably would have continued to do what he did in Genesis and just caused humanity to be created from the mud. But for whatever reason, God created procreation, particularly for humans, as a delightful, enjoyable experience, not just a pragmatic one. Not through asexual budding, oh look, a new baby is coming, growing off thy side, but actually requiring communion, requiring intimacy and requiring um, this delight. The poetry goes on, right, in geography, not just in sensuality, from hard mountaintops to soft, spicy, ripe, moist gardens, right? It's the whole of um, an emotional distance that this couple begins to traverse. So that he first calls out to her, um, come down from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon, descend from the crests of these mountains, past where the mountain lions are, past the leopards into a safe, secure place with me. 
right? It's the whole of the emotional journey that's covered, not just the heights of pleasure and joy, but the places of fear and desperation as well, from emotional distance to erotic desire. All of our emotions find a place in both relationship but also seem to be validated and treasured by Scripture. Isn't this good news for us? Because otherwise you'd be led to believe that only the happy emotions are appropriate as people who follow God. And occasionally sadness as we repent from sin. But this scripture text seems to suggest to us that in the course of human relationship, as we experience both um, ecstasy and the agony, right? As we experience both the height of light as well as some of the dark despair, God finds a place to validate and to say, I gave you the range of human emotions to experience with each other and to experience before me, to delight in, to be comforted through, and to endure. So you have all five senses are engaged. You have the heights of the mountains down to this garden. And as you begin to listen to the imagery, right, in the way that poetry works, you begin to hear phrases that are evoked in other places, don't you? Why does this relation consummate itself in a garden? Where clothes have been shed, and there's clearly no shame, and there's clearly no fear, and there's clearly no embarrassment, just delight. What imagery is the author trying to suggest for us to, to meditate on? That in some small way, a little bit of paradise has been regained when we live out our relationships properly. When um, the man talks about, underneath your tongue, I find honey and milk. Um, some of the commentators point out those are often um, words that are used in ancient Near Eastern love and erotic poetry, right, to designate the sweetness and the delight of um, sexual activity. But if you were an Israelite hearing milk and honey, what would you be thinking about? What it means, what would it mean to believe that in that kind of relationship, you are in a safe space. You are no longer traveling and journeying and laboring, but God has brought you to a place of rest, a place of promise, a place of abundance, a place of, place of fruitfulness that literally you've been brought into your promised land that he designed for you and has prepared for you and will give to you. What would it mean for us to actually believe as you hear these resonances, right? of abundance, of safety, of security, of hope, of a lack of shame and fear, if that were the way that we approached any question as a church about human sexuality. Because I find so often, because human sexuality is such a powerful force in our lives, right? the immediate way we treat it is uh, with fear. It's this powerful, uncontrollable force, and therefore the first thing that we talk about are the boundaries, the first thing we talk about are the safeguards, the first things we talk about are the whens and the wheres and the whats. But it seems to be that part of what scripture does is it starts with the delights, the joy, the goodness of what God intends for us, not the danger of how we misuse it. Now, I suspect, like all of you, some of um, my deepest experiences of shame and failure, of misery and of repentance, ends up dealing with the area of uh, our own sexuality. Right? I, I suspect nobody would be able to say, yeah, this is an area I feel great about. But isn't some of the discouragement that we feel, isn't some of the shame and the frustration we feel? Because deep in our heart of hearts, we actually know how good it is what God intends. The incredible gift that it could be, that it should be, that by God's grace it, it might be. 
imagine how it would change the ways that we relate if we could celebrate um, our sexuality in healthy, appropriate ways rather than fearing it. I led a seminar one time for InterVarsity staff, and often, um, and it was uh, myself and a female colleague, and part of what we talked about with InterVarsity staff was, you know, so often the, the challenge when you work in Christian ministry, but any groups of Christians, is our, our desire is to neuter one another or to live kind of androgynously because we just rather not have to deal with that, particularly if you're work colleagues, right? And so we obviously think, oh, I just don't really think of them as, you know, I just think of them as my brother or my sister in this kind of weird, um, neutery sort of way. <laughs> and what we said is part of the problem, though, is that when you work together and you do that, it actually makes it impossible then to actually talk about both to delight in one another as somebody created differently and to take advantages of some of those differences, as well as when things then become complicated or difficult to actually have the honest conversations that you need to have if you have to keep pretending that it doesn't exist. But if we are able to actually celebrate our differences, to delight in the fact that um, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase it best, um, because it's not sexual tension per se, but the awareness of the difference and the delight in that actually providing energy and life into relationship rather than being something to be feared. I think for men, we frankly could ignore most of this because often we are not as vulnerable. But for the women here, I suspect, you know exactly what that's like, right? To always be concerned if I were to actually demonstrate how beautiful, how confident, how attractive I am, I actually put myself at risk in relationships at work, as I walk through the streets, as I live in my neighborhood. What happens if human sexuality is something to be delighted in rather than feared? Part of, is part of what I think this text is showing, just as in its own, in its own poetry. Well, let's walk through the passage and follow the course of action as they go. In chapter 4, beginning in verse 8 through 11, I think part of what you get is um, just the deep sense of passion that at least this man feels for this woman, right? Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. And he goes on to say in verse 9, you have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. I just see a small trinket that you've worn. And immediately... I can't think of anybody else, anything else but you, right? This is like a crush beyond all crushes. This is like an obsession almost. I just saw something you wore one time, and all I could imagine was I saw you. Um, how delightful is your love, my sister, my bride? How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any spites? Your lips store sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. And this move, man moves from, I see your eyes and I see something you wear and all I can think of is you, to um, when uh, it says in verse 10, how delightful is your love, the actual images of um, your caresses of your touch. So they've moved from seeing to touching to by the end they're kissing and he's completely caught up and overwhelmed by it. Now again, as my wife will say, I'm low amplitude man, so I, I'm never so... I'm. I occasionally get lost reading the newspaper or something, but um, I, I was thinking about my friend Michael. Uh, Michael in, in law school is um, the only person I've ever watched totally swoon. 
And for about a period of three weeks, he met this person, and literally, he dropped weight, because he stopped eating, he was pale, he couldn't sleep, he stopped concentrating on his work, and all of us were, all of us who lack a romantic soul were like, get a grip. <laughs> Pull yourself together. But it was clear, that was all he could think about, all he could imagine, all that he could do, it totally caught him up. So, I have, have any of you ever felt that way? Right? There's this passion and this overwhelming experience. And isn't that what makes love so frightening? Isn't it, make it what makes love so powerful? Isn't it what makes love so attractive that it's this overwhelming, transcendent, um, thoroughly engaging experience? And because it's so powerful and because it's so overwhelming and because it changes everything, beyond just the experience of the passion, this passage then pushes us to, where is the sense of protection? How can you experience this without destroying yourself? Right? Because we've all seen the destructive aspects of this played out over and over and over again in our own lives and in the lives of our friends and family and on the world stage. Certainly, right, People Magazine exists because of verses 8 through 11. And what you get, um, well, and us, I mean, right, and I, I was trying to name what I think of as the most respectful and respectable of those magazines. I mean, once you get into Star, you're in a completely different orbit already. I may be confessing too much that I know the difference. But um, beginning in verse 12, you get a sense of how this um, passion and excitement can get expressed safely, right? Uh, the man continues, you are a garden locked up, my sister and bride. You are a fountain enclosed, a sealed fountain. And the image in those days of a garden would have been a, a, a walled, uh, expansive area where you might have a fountain, you'd have your fruits and your vegetables, but it was walled, it was locked, it was protected and saved, is the image there. They, su they suggest that the, the language of garden actually might have come from the Persian, um, which gives us the word paradise which I think heightens the Eden imagery that's here, right? Um, so it's literally almost saying, you're a paradise, an Eden, uh, that's been protected and sealed. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. And then the, the plants that are described in verse 13 and 14 are this crazy profusion that would never grow in a single garden, but it's like every exotic spice and plant and flower that the Israelites could imagine. Right? He's saying, gathered here is an abundance of the most mysterious, exotic, wild um, scents and images that I can even imagine. And then by 15, um, it seems as if the well's been breached. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. How do you express this passion, this overwhelming sense, um, the great power of love safely? Well, it's precisely, right, um, in the context of this marriage relationship. The man says, nobody else has entered this garden. It's always been locked. Nobody else has drunk from this well. It's been sealed until our wedding night when it's been opened. Right? And it's parallel to the advice given to the young man in Proverbs 5, 15 through 20, where um, the elder says to his child, to his son, drink, from your own drink water from your own cistern, 
running well from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in public squares? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast always satisfy you. May you, never, may you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? That the safest context for the expression of this incredibly powerful experience, obviously what we've said for 2,000 years is the institution of marriage. I think back to uh, another friend of mine, Karen. Um, we were uh, great friends. I was her safe date. So when she wasn't romantically involved but had to go at a wedding, she would like, Greg, come with me. But she, know I, she knew I liked food, so any chance I got to be fed was good. Um, but she also knew that we had no romantic interest to one another, but we would, she was like the emergency theater buddy I had, or like, hey, there's a new bookstore open, you want to go? I'm like, I'm in. Um, she used to say at that point, you know, after I turn like 45 or 50, no longer care about romance, if I'm still alone, I'll call you. Because then we'd be fun, you know, we could just go out and do all these other things. I'm like, okay. Um, but she did end up romantic relationships. It says a lot about me that that's how I was perceived, and I was probably grateful for it at the time. But um, she used to say in her dating relationships that her rule of thumb for how far to go was, um, is what I'm doing with this man going to make him a better husband to his, his eventual wife? Now, she wasn't thinking of herself particularly as a great instructor, like, let me teach him. He's terrible at this. But what she thought is, in whatever I do, will his future wife bless me or will she curse me? Will my memory be helpful to him? And the ex our experiences together have made, prepared him to be more loving, more faithful, um, more present. Or will I be one of those ghosts haunting his past? And it seems like kind of, you know, a squishy sort of line, but... When you begin to think about its implications, it was a great line for her and for him, whoever she was dating at the time. Because she knew and wanted to communicate the safest place, the only place for this kind of a powerful experience to be experienced is in the context of marriage. And therefore, I'm not going to do anything that's going to violate that safe space for the woman that he eventually marries. And if it's me, she said, I don't want it violated either. In some ways, this is why monogamy is a critical Christian teaching. As outdated or fusty um, or as uptight as it may be, um, it's also frankly why I can't manage to muster any energy around the entire gay marriage debate. I don't think the greatest challenge to marriage is a small number of homosexual couples choosing to use the term marriage. right? It's actually the lived testimony of the hundreds of thousands of millions of Christian marriages is a better testimony of the power and the importance and the sanctity of marriage than any small number of other people um, using the term inappropriately, since it's really a religious term, not a civil term. And that if Christians were more concerned about the sanctity of marriage, then we'd work on that in the way that Dick and his wife chose to last weekend than worry so much about the other. Well, beyond passion and protection, what I really love about this love poetry is that it's very not one-sided. There's incredible partnership demonstrated here. This book, this section is actually the book's geographic center um, and the thematic heart of the text, and it's in verses uh, 
chapter 4, verse 16 through 5.1, if you count the number of verses before and the number of verses after, it's these two verses that are right at the center, where the wedding night is consummated. Listen to the language again. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden that, is, that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Notice the mutuality and the sharing that's implied. She is the garden and it's her garden, but by the end of that conversation, it's now his garden. Let him come in. And he identifies it as his as well. But what's clear, right, is that this isn't like a male conquest of a weak woman. I used to have my body, now he owns it. Great. Um, she's actively participating in this. She's actively enticing him. He is out of his mind with love, and she says, now's the time. I'm going to let you come to me. The winds, let the news go forth. You're the one I want, right? This isn't some weak woman being used by a man to get what he wants and what she wants out of a relationship. Uh, this is an incredibly powerful, confident woman who's the, actually the majority speaker in the Song of Songs, announcing, I'm ready and you're ready, so now you can come. Um, and this is why, at least in the older NIV translation, which is, I think, the one that's read, the term um, lover and the beloved, I think, doesn't help us because uh, the lover is the active and the beloved is this passive person who, re who receives the person's love. In this story, it's about a man and woman equally pursuing one another, equally obsessed with one another, and equally choosing to be in that relationship together by the time you get to the place where they are in being wed. Um, she's strong, she's powerful, and she's confident, and she's choosing when her garden will be open. And she's choosing to open the well. And he's choosing and fully obsessed and consumed with his love for this woman that he's there. Um, that's why I think the Song of Songs isn't really pornographic uh, as much as it is erotic. Because the woman isn't objectified, right? She isn't just an object of his desire. She's a full participant in this relationship. He's not using her to get what she want, he wants, and she's not using him to get what she wants. They're giving each other to each other. Um, and all the language that's anticipated in verses 8 through 11, the myrrh and the honey and the milk, all of a sudden come together. And in that experience, everything that they anticipated has become reality together. Um, and I think it's that mutuality, right? That partnership is actually what we long for in the relationships and what the scripture seems to show. That in Genesis, God creates man and woman to together bear his image, together to exercise dominion. And when Adam finds Eve, what they recognize is together there's no one else, there's nothing else in creation that's like the other. Right? Adam had a chance to survey all of the animals. He goes, nah, a dog is great, but no. <laughs> the monkey's cute, but nah, gerbils, really gerbils? And then he sees Eve and he goes, oh, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Terrible Hallmark card, Valentine's Day sentiment, but absolutely true, right? You're the only thing in the universe like me, and that's what I want. That's part of the power, I think, when a great relationship happens. I, I often think of um, this book by Richard Seltzer, who is a surgeon called Mortal Lessons, Notes on the Art of Surgery. And 
He describes meeting this married couple after he had done a little surgery. And I think it shows the kind of partnership that I think we long for that this song begins to talk about. He says, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted and palsy, kind of clown-like. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh, I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening, evening lamplight. The woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? She asks. Yes, I say, it will. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in encounter with a god. Undeterred, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. I am so close. I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. Isn't that the partnership that we're longing for? It's actually part and parcel and a continuation of what Dave, I suspect, was talking a little bit about yesterday, I mean last week, that part of the delight of moving forward in life is not just that um, you have shared experiences, but with every wrinkle a married couple experiences together, with every sag and every bend, with every ache and every pain, um, it's testimony to the shared life that you, lead, that you lead. Only, I think only a fool in middle age would desire a young woman's body because it comes with a young woman's mind and heart, right? <laughs> What brings delight, what brings heart, what brings passion to the marriage is the ability to bend to one another's lips because you know exactly where the broken places are and you try to meet each other there, right? Where you recognize the scars and you are especially gentle, right? Where um, every stretch mark and uh, every bulge that's a little unusual at this age but normal for people at this stage of our life, you just think that's a sign of beauty because it's a sign that we've lived together and we've survived this long. It's the kind of partnership that's treasured in this passage for all that it's young and it's erotic. It's the sense of your garden is my garden and my body and my heart are yours, right? The man's entered this woman's garden and drunk from her wells and he said, you've totally captured my heart. My soul is yours. What's I think fascinating is this um, last two lines in verse one uh, labeled usually in the NIV, friends. Eat, friends, and drink. Drink of your love. Now, it's a little strange. So what's this? What are these friends doing? I mean, it's a wedding, but right, a little awkward. Like, yeah! What's going on? And the commentators really do a lot of dancing trying to explain this. Um, and there were traditions where, you know, you'd have the bridal party celebrating um, around you. Um, one, a series of commentators said, though, um, because it's the absolute center of this text, and because um, it's a commentary on people experiencing for just a moment 
what Eden was like and what the promised land was intended to be, could it actually be the voice of God speaking his affirmation into this relationship? At the very center of the book, eat friends and drink. Drink the fill of your love. Whoever it is, um, it's like a Greek chorus, right? Affirming and delighting and encouraging and celebrating this relationship. The Song of Songs is an, is an awkward text because it's unapologetically a love song. The name of God doesn't even appear in the book. There's just a vague reference to, wow, your maker did a great job in the lines of uh, the man at one point. But the presupposition, because it's embedded where it is in the text of Scripture, is that a life lived well, which is what the Proverbs talk about, is a life lived into God's presence. Lived in God's presence at every aspect of our life. Um, in life and in death, in love, as well as despair, we live fully in God's presence. And I think it's because of that that then the New Testament picks up on that language and says, the best description we can give you of the love that God has for his people is of a married couple's love for one another. And the unity and the closeness and the partnership that you experience as a married couple who lives into the Song of Songs is just a glimpse of the kind of partnership that God desires to have with you. That it's the closest we're going to get to a full explanation. And so that part of what we do, I think, as um, people who live into this text, whether single or married, right, because the power of our sexuality and love is expressed in both ways, is to also begin to explore what does it mean in every day the choice of loving, of caring, of twisting our lips to meet one another at our places of deepest need is actually an exercise in understanding what it means that God might try to love us in the same way. And I think that's the critical hope we have. Because like you, I suspect, the areas of my greatest failings and greatest shame and greatest brokenness probably occurs in this area of my life and the ways that I fail my own spouse. But if I believe that this is designed, this relationship is designed to teach me about God's love for his people, then it also opens me in the place of my deepest shame and failing to the deepest experiences of grace and of acceptance, of forgiveness and of hope, of perseverance with one another, of living out for those of us who are married what it really means till death do us part. And that's why this book, I think, unapologetically is a book of delight, not just of duty. And that's why its language is so abundant, so lush, and so full. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I ask for your mercy. I ask for your mercy because I, and I suspect my brothers and sisters here, fall so far short of uh, the delight and the hope, um, the love, and the appropriately expressed lust. Uh, that's part of this text. So rather than, Lord, um, cause us to look at our failings, I pray, would you delight us with your promise, the abundance of the joy that you offer, um, the full use of and experience of who we are and who we could become and who you desire us to be. Cause us to love generously and fully um, so that we'd have a foretaste of the generosity and fullness that you offer us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.